0: Hello everybody and welcome to the 356th holiday episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's all up in your stocking, trading fruitcake for booster packs. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Derek the Dark Mage at OkoAssassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, everyone. Happy holidays to those celebrating
1: whatever your holiday of choice is. I will say I've been celebrating by, as promised last week, getting my first uh, TCG sort shipment out the door for the first time in weeks. I am very happy about having a little bit of time off, and what more do we love than talking magic? So good to be here, as always. Uh, But before we jump in, I do want to remind listeners that the show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to play Plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial
0: minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, singles, sealed products, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on our holiday agenda this week? Alright, well we have our normal segments plus the
1: holiday recap, so we're going to start with segment one, where we are going to talk about our metagame week in review. Usually it's MTGO, but this time we're going to talk about a couple paper tournaments uh, since mtgo is taking a break of publishing deck lists for the week after that we're gonna move on to segment two where we're talking about our top movers of the week and discuss why we believe these cards saw significant gains then on to segment three our cards to watch where we'll both share our uh picks of the uh, cards we have our eyes on at the moment and finally we'll wrap things up with segment four which is our topic of the week and we are going to do our at least start our year-end review uh, talking about some of the picks throughout the year and also just kind of some of the highlights of the year Uh, top sets and things like that and reminisce a little before we uh, move on into a busy 2023 I'm sure.
0: Sounds good to me. So kicking things off we've got segment one instead of the online metagame week review we're just going to go with metagame week can review since we're going to be looking at paper tourney results one uh, in Japan and then the 30k mana traders invitational. So this is a 140 person tournament in Japan modern tournament last sun was the name and fairly standard looking top eight with a little bit of spice creativity in first and second hammer time in third blue red murktide in fourth four color omnath with a spicy kiki-jiki in the mix five color domain in sixth and temeshi bloom making a rare appearance in seventh blue red murktide rounding out that top eight
1: Yeah, I was a little surprised. Usually with Japan, you get a little bit more spice than you have here, Uh, but we do see a little bit more diversity than normal between the five-color kind of domain interesting there, the Kiki-Jiki, the Tamashi Bloom. Yeah, it's a little bit more diversity than we usually see, but they're still, I'd say, really well-rounded archetypes, Uh, maybe not tier one, but definitely things we've seen before.
0: Over on this 30k Mana Traders Invitational, which of course is going to be a little skewed by who was invited, uh, first place was Amulet Titan, which is, you know, know, top eight favorite for many years, but hasn't done a lot of work lately, uh, taking the, the whole thing down, uh, at This invitational blue red murktide in second, dredge making a fairly rare appearance in third, blue red murktide in fourth, creativity in fifth and sixth instead of first and second in that other tournament, hammer time in seventh, and another blue red murktide list in eighth.
1: Yeah, uh, here again, a lot of what you'd expect. Um, the only card I saw in here that really surprised me that I hadn't seen. In a tournament deck before, but although I haven't really looked too closely, is Kurna, I think I pronounced that correctly, the Boundless Sky, which was in the ambulant Titan sideboard. It's a legendary dragon from Neon Dynasty, uh, two green, three colorless, for a flying death touch 4-4, four, four, and when it dies, search a library for up to three lands, put them in your hand, um, or make us uh, XX spirit token, which acts the number of lands you control. So I'm assuming it's just giving it a little bit more boost
0: Uh, i would imagine that that's 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 to go get things like um slayer stronghold to finish up the game right or a balicut i would think so but i'm curious how you're because it has to die
1: so you have to summon it with i mean so the summoning is pretty easy because you have four packed uh summoners packed so you're able to get it pretty easily even though it's one copy but how does it die that i don't know so that's interesting little tech I would love to learn more about.
0: But otherwise, see, they pretty, seem pretty standard. Moving on over to top paper movers of the week. Uh, relatively quiet given the holidays, as one might expect. This is usually a quieter time of year. Uh, do have a little bit of movement uh, on the latest hype cycles. We got Maronar original copies out of Champions of Kamigawa, 15 to 20, 33% gains on the back of that new Rat Commander that was spoiled for the uh, all-will-be-one um, Ancillary product that's coming out in March. Underworld Breach continues its march up the price curve 18 to 25 this week. This is just regular copies from Theros Beyond Death. 40% gains and uh, probably not haven't quite hit the ceiling on this card yet given the amount of play it's seeing. Brave the Elements out of original Zendikar and has been reprinted since. But these original copies in non-foil going 2 to $3. L- l- almost certainly on the back of the Pioneer mono white deck running it. In multiples we've also got cyber drive awakener uh, out of the neon uh, dynasty commander cards 650 to 11 dollars and regular almost 70 percent gains and that's probably related to the shurikai uh, sliding into the top slot for edh rec commanders of the week this card is in 53 percent of those decks as it can take all of your vehicles and turn them into uh, potential attackers kind of out of nowhere We've also got the Knight Paladin Surge Foil and Living Death Surge Foils making a move. They the Surge Foil's continuing to be targeted on the back of a relatively short print run of the premium 40k decks. The Knight Paladins uh, went $4 to $8. Also useful in Shurikai, so that might have had something to do with it. And then the Living Death uh, movement is 450 to 925. That's gotta just be surge targeting as it's, you know, a EDH staple for the most part.
1: Yeah, I I mean yeah. All, all these, you know, they're fine. Nothing too shocking here. Um I, the Underworld Breach one, I think in particular, just shows you what can happen if they don't reprint an in-play card like they have been for some of these others. Um I mean that's uh, we talked about it a couple times on cast, but getting up to 25 bucks, I man, that's that's solid trajectory. Um I looked up what Liliana and Snapcaster, how long it took them to reprint back in the day, and it took many many years and it was you know it was surprising to look at the data trends just you know in retrospect and it's pretty flat for a long time and then they just go crazy and it's one of those things where these things get three four years out five years out um, without a reprint and sky's the limit because these copies just start drying up they're in binders people forget about them they're in decks and you know you, you can just see this i i, I hope to see it more yeah, wizards prints prints a little too much of my taste like i said and, Recently in
0: uh, some of these, at least of the newer cards. If you bought a big stack of Underworld Breaches in September of 2020, you could have gotten them at $1. sixty-five or so. And they're now heading for $30. Yep. Although this is
1: one where, I mean, I would have thought, would, originally I would have said, well, if it's good, it probably gets banned. And if it's not good, then it's bulk. So why bother? Um, here it's really come close to that line i think in a lot of places
0: uh but been able to stay under the radar as of now so good for it okay i I would argue it's just a it's a much more balanced well-balanced card versus the card that it references yawgmoth's will where yawgmoth's will for one extra mana just lets you cast all your stuff out of the graveyard for an entire turn with no penalty other than paying its casting cost breach requires that you have enough a deep enough yard that you can pay the escape costs which is self-limiting um so the card's powerful but not utterly busted in half and that's a pretty pretty nice sweet spot i agree i think one of the things that holds us back as well is the fact that
1: most of magic world right now is magic online and a magic online this tech requires click after click after click which means only a certain number of players are even willing to pick it up um and then in paper, you know, you're you're not seen as ubiquitous online, which means people don't really build it as much in paper. Um, so I think that's part of it is that people don't want to be playing comboy decks that require you know 100 clicks to win, which this one is is one of those that it, I mean it's annoying. It's you can't grind leagues very effectively because in leagues the the longer a deck takes, the more even if it's a high win rate, you'd rather have a, a slightly lower win rate and. Um, be able to grind a league in half the speed. Um, So I think that holds us back as
0: well. And in the current, you know, mostly online environment for modern. Well, I mean, it's certainly true on the competitive side for Breach, but Breach is an S tier EDH staples and 76,000 decks reported on EDH rec and 8% of all red decks run it. So this is... I think it's more to do with your first set of comments, which was about, hey, no reprint. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, it's 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 a really strong, you know, s tier edh staple that is has looks like it's headed into its third year uh, without a reprint. Now, that being said, it would not surprise me in the slightest to see this show up in a secret layer because now it's a juicy now it's a juicy target for them.
1: yeah, I I think the edh point can't be. Um, negated, but I do think competitive is what's driving this price tag because it's only really went up in price since September of this year. And that's when the kind of combo-y Underworld, deck, uh, underworld Breach deck started to take off. And it's went from, I mean, only $5 non-foil at that time, TCD market price, all the way to 20 plus. And that doesn't happen from random EDH demand. So I do think, even though EDH
0: is what drained the copies competitive is what's pushing over the edge it's it's very similar in that respect to something like a shadow spear or a Thassa's oracle where they they see a ton of edh play and a smattering of competitive play depending on you know where they are in boom or in bust meta cycles or ba- you know pre or post bannings etc if we're looking at Oracle's price in non-foil is currently sitting at about 15, and it's been on an upswing since middle of the year as well. Uh, you know, started started this year around just under $9 and is currently sitting at $14.80 market. So would not be super surprised to see Oracle, for instance, chase Underworld Breach a bit here uh, later this year. The difference is that Breach is being experimented with in modern at present. And potentially in Pioneer, whereas Oracle is banned in Pioneer, if I'm not mistaken. uh, Because of the it, Inverter I, deck. Banned in Historic. Yeah, it's legal in Pioneer.
1: I think Inverter might be banned. Inverter got the ban for that. Yeah, Inverter is banned in Pioneer.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. yeah,
1: and and if you're playing Thassa's Oracle, a lot of times you're only playing the one or maybe two copies, which, you know, kind of like Shadow Spear, like you said,
0: helps, but it's not like uh, Underworld Breach where you're playing two, three, four. So we've also got Dead and Gone here out of Planar Chaos foils 16 to 28. That is going to be like the slow steady drip of Living End and Crashing Footfalls players foiling out their decks. We've also got Chaos Defiler, a non-foil 40k card going 250 to 12. Not exactly sure what's going on with that other than that people are looking for 40k cards to target. Um, yep. I don't see it uh, having a massive play pattern with any of the most popular commanders at present. And it's, it seems like a very medium uh, overall EDH card with no prospects in other formats. If you got them, sell them, in my opinion. Turn the earth... I mean, go, doubling back to Underworld Breach for a second, absolutely a sell signal on that. If you can get like oh, yeah. 20 yeah. to $30 on a regular Breach, given that you can assume somewhere in the next year you'll probably see a reprint and it could be a really beautiful new borderless art version in a secret layer
1: yeah and it's not like this is something that it's not a mythic it's i mean if it gets reprinted it's just gonna get crushed so yeah i'd be i'd be out of those price i mean it could go to if it doesn't get reprinted it's one of those cards that could go to 40 50 60 dollars easy but i'm you the, the odds of that are a lot less than the odds of it getting a reprint like well
0: see things. if it was getting reprinted in something like a very busy double masters style set then i would i would think crushing in terms of when we're saying crushing we're talking about like reducing price by 50 percent or something would be very much on the table if it's a secret layer printing that's not necessarily true because a fancy borderless version may just suck up most of the EV from the $30 or $40 version of that release depending on what else they include with it. If it's the best card of 3 or 4 and the others are sub $5 cards, then it may hold price. You know, right. look at look at the the price of the propagandas coming out of those uh coin flip decks.
1: Right. I mean, I think I think it would hurt the I think it would hurt it down to Thosca Oracle price, right? If it's a secret layer. I don't think it goes to zero, but it goes down to less than half of what you, you know, if you're selling it for 22 now, I think if it's if it has a secret layer printing, I think in a minimum you could get it for 14, 12. So either way, it's fine to sell unless you need it. If you need it for personal play, have it personal. But otherwise, I, I, I think you could sell it and still buy back in off of any reprint for less than
0: what it is. Now, minus fees. Largely on the same page. Turn the Earth double feature silver screen foils 250 to 12. This looks like silver screen cards just being targeted one after another. And this one in particular seems very loose since it has relatively low EDH demand and no demand really anywhere else. This lets every player in the game add a card back to their deck. And that just this if you can get over $10 for these silver screen foils, just sell and move on. Yep. Finishing things up, we've got Ravenous Baboons out of Exodus going $1.50 to $8 in, in theory. This just looks like a one of the several it's a monkey buy it cards that people <laughs> have been trying to capitalize on because of Kibo being a fun little commander. But Kibo hasn't broken into even the top 10 on EDH rec this week. So this this all looks very loose to me. This is like greater fool action. You just want to get in and out on the monkeys as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least this one, unlike some of the others we have seen in the past where it's just awful, this is an okay card. It's kind of like Avalanche Riders, but better. Without the Haste and the Echo? Because you don't have Echo. The Haste, you're missing Haste, but it's a 2-2, who cares? And so you could flicker this, like there's things you could do with it that you'd actually want to do. Unlike some of the cards we see where you're just like, no one ever wants to play this ever. What are you doing? So I'll give it that. That said, yeah, no steer clear. (laughs) This is, this doesn't seem where like you want to put your money.
0: So moving on over to cards to watch for the week, we're going to talk about the rat commander. Looks like it's driving enough hype that there are some other cards that are not quite as bad as the the apes because rats have been a more enduring casual and EDH theme amongst a certain percentage of the the commander population to a much greater degree than I think Kibo is going to drive things very hard. And so relevant rats cards that are in short supply that have already been reasonable sellers to date are likely to benefit the most from this, this new toxic rat lord and relentless rats is the one you're going to talk about in a second i've got rat colony foils from the secret layer which are currently drained down to something like 11 or 12 listings on tcg player and buy-in price of about 13 and i could see the exit being something like 25 within the next six months seems very reasonable Given that you can, this is one of those cards where you can put a whole bunch of them in your deck, and as a result, it will drive additional sales. So people that buy these want many of them.
1: Looking at how many, so there's there's more vendors. There's actually a near mint. There's 13 vendors, but of actual bricks of four or more, there's only seven vendors on TCG, with it ranging from 13 to 15, 17. Uh, it doesn't take much to wipe that out and I'm looking so the other thing I always do and I'm kind of like evaluating something like this where I want bricks is I look at what are people buying right so you look at you go now TCG player I mean for a while now has has the actual sale numbers and if you go into their sales near mint foils I'm seeing a stack of five, a stack of five, another five, two sixes five, four, four, eleven, six, five four and that is only in the last 10 days and those are big those are very abnormal yeah you don't see that you know very often and so clearly it's clearly moving cardboard the new new commander and i noticed this too which we'll just integrate the conversation on on my pick because i so my pick is relentless rats non-foil specifically uh going from but you could do the foil too i think the same logic applies non-foil in europe being a kind of arbitrage play going from one dollars to five and that's something i think you can get immediately and the reason i thought of this is because i just had a sale today of 45 um time remastered old bordered relentless rats for eight bucks a piece that i was in on for a dollar about a year and a half ago from europe and that's crazy i mean this whatever 700% profit um on 45 copies was like 300 bucks net profit and that's great i want to do that all day and so the fact that you can still do that now a year and a half later and still be picking up copies over there for a buck like awesome and the card king to buy list there is a buck 80 so you could flip it i mean immediately if you're able to tack this onto an order and not be paying shipping, obviously uh, Magic Card Market's different, but for both of these, it, the the new recommender clearly actually moving cardboard. It's not theoretical, and so I think the projections
0: for both of these to do well seem to be pretty easy. I've got a bunch of the of Russian copies of these Relentless Rats sitting around for the discerning Rat Collector. Nice, nice. I, uh, I looked at who has the
1: Relentless Rat Foil Bricks... That are priced well above market, and it's all pro traders.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for for the foils. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about the rat colony is that when people are buying five or six, they could be buying it for their deck, but there's also speculation activity going on uh, around these rats. So people bought in on seven, eight, nine dollar copies a week or two ago. Definitely are are ahead of the curve. Yep. Uh, Okay, so moving on from cards to watch, we'll we'll talk a little bit about. 2022 as a year in the hobby, and uh, I guess we'll look at this from two perspectives, kind of the top-down perspective of Magic as a whole, and then also looking at uh, our cards to watch Now the cards to watch does not we don't no longer align this with the calendar year, so it's not looking back on cards to watch starting from last week all the way back to January because we realized a couple years back that that didn't really make much sense because the the picks from the second half of the year didn't have time to mature, so there wasn't a whole lot of reason to look at them. So instead, we now at the end of the year look back uh, a year and a half in, in in the. Cards to watch window, where we're looking at the June twenty no July twenty twenty one through to June of twenty twenty two, and and looking at the cards to watch that uh, I myself in this in this time period in, in particular myself Travis Cliff and the pro traders. Um, we don't have time to go through everybody's stuff tonight, so we'll just do mine this week and then everybody else's next week, and we'll do the year and review overview stuff this week as well to optimize our time. So the long and the short of it on my side of things is that I had 149 cards to watch throughout that time period, and the total cost, if you had bought a single copy of everything— um, which keep in mind is not at all what we recommend you do. We've been very much on this, this train for a while now where we say ignore at least the top third or one out of every three picks, if not the, you know, two out of three every week and just pick the best one. And you'll see why that makes perfect sense in a second. Total cost of all of my 149 picks would have been 3,588.57. The total revenue you could have got if you sold at their peak uh, ROI point or their, uh, or they're low. If if the card went up, I credited us at peak uh, peak price. If the card went down, I credited us at the low point because I'm trying to penalize appropriately if we, say, get in at 20 and it drops 12. It might still be a great card, but we got you in too early, and that's important to, to flag. So all of that adding up, the 3588, 57 would turn into 42, 45, 26, with an average hold time of 214 days, so only about two thirds of a year on average for these specs to get to the finish line. And if you bought everything, then that still results in an annualized ROI of about 33%, which is not ultra impressive, but very solid for for a shotgun approach like this that only takes into account picks from a Tuesday night and Often we doesn't get to double count a lot of other stuff we talk about in the Discord on other days of the week um, or ideas that other Discord members have advanced that can't uh, legitimately be claimed as our own. But it gets real interesting if you start looking at what happens if you're more discerning. If you didn't buy the whole basket, if you just bought the top two-thirds, then you would have spent two thousand one hundred seventeen thirty two. Total revenue would have been 3,346.93 and that annualized ROI is like 118%, which then starts to get very very attractive. And if you're ultra discerning, if you're just weeding like digging through the picks looking for the diamond in the rough every week and you're picking out the top pick from my stuff every week then that top one third would be a total cost of seven ninety five thirty two, total revenue of sixteen fifty one ninety two, which is an annualized ROI of two hundred and forty eight percent. Not bad, not bad, especially when the stock market's down. <laughs> well, and and in comparison to things like your average stock market returns, which tend to be in the ten to twelve percent range. Um, and can be lower if you're, you know, you're in dividend, a dividend-heavy portfolio. Higher if you're in gross stocks and the market's doing well. Um, you know, real estate has had big runs in the, over the last twenty years and is now hurting. But you know, down cycles are are prevalent in most asset categories. One of the interesting things, of course, about magic as a collectible has been that it doesn't seem to have major cyclical downtrends. Not at least in the time that I have been present in the hobby, which is 12 years or so. The, there are certainly cards that ebb and flow, in individual cards, but the entire hobby doesn't tend to go damn 30% in the way that the stock market can. What you have is cards that are bought less because of meta considerations, reprints, what have you. And you can get caught out in different ways as a result. But I'm very happy with this. 33% all picks, 118% top two-thirds, 248% top third is very reasonable place to be. Let's take a look at some of the stuff that did very well. I mean, actually, maybe let's look at the, the worst of the worst first. That would be that would be good. So down near the, the bottom here, I think probably the worst pick of the year was, or of this period, was Miojin of Grim Betrayal out of the... Neon Dynasty Commander cards. I called the pack foils at 10 to go to 20. And this was because the, the Miosians were weird. They only appeared in set boosters as a mythic foil. And that meant that compared to many other mythic foil variants for other cards in standard sets, they had a very, very low drop rate. The problem is... There's no actual demand for the card. <laughs> None of the Miosians were good enough as EDH cards to capture the Zeitgeist and get stashed into a bunch of decks. If they had been even medium-quality playable cards, something on the level of a smuggler Stash or something, my prediction may well have come true. But this flags the problem with picking things that are only supply-side because if you don't have the latent demand then it doesn't matter how few copies you have and indeed because no one needed the card or wanted the card whatever card copies of this were opened were just posted to TCG Player and ebay over and over and over again undercutting the price of the last copy posted as they continued to fail to sell and this went instead of going 10 to 20 it went 10 to 73 cents so if you bought 10 copies of this at $10, like I told you to, hoping to get $200, you would have ended up losing almost 90% of your money. Yep. And
1: so, <laughs> yeah, so I've had a couple of those in my day too. Uh, one thing I will note for listeners, and this is definitely not tax advice, but if you have a near wipeout and you're having a good year, sometimes you just need to sell things like that. Because then you can, you can say, well, I, you know, I lost, you can actually declare the loss of $9 loss, or $10 yeah. to offset your income. So you're not paying taxes on that because otherwise, you know, if you have a good year and then you have these things sitting on your books, like they're not doing you any good. At least if you can take, you know, say 250 in tax losses, you know, out of your pocket or put it back in your pocket, that's something <laughs> because otherwise these just sting, I will say.
0: There's definitely 300 copies of aggressive mining in the cabinet that w- should be declared as a loss at some point. <laughs> nice.
1: My, mine is, uh, uh, what's the Death Shadow 2, two, two mana Death Shadow? Um, Scourge of the Skyclaves. Yeah. I, I definitely bought those way too high when it was competitively doing well. And now it is, I think the EAs are $2. Oh, it hurts.
0: <laughs> so here's here's some of my other, at least near-term failures. In March, I called the Silver Fur Master Foil promos. That's the Ninja Lord promo card to go three to ten and instead it's down to 45 cents the people building the ninja decks for commander lasted about three or four months and then fell off the radar as a whole bunch of other interesting stuff came up and because ninjas aren't nearly as uh, popular a tribe as something like say elves or vampires it just could not hold hold the line and there was also plenty of those promos floating around the kaido shizuki foil borderless Uh, I called to go 100 to 160, and today, in North America at least, it is worth $21. And this was on the back of Kaito and the Wandering Emperor skyrocketing early in Japan. And there was actually a really good exit that lasted about six weeks on the Wandering Emperor foil showcase. But in Japan, there was a major premium on the Japanese versions of this card versus the English. And the Japanese buy list on on the English was very strong for about three or four weeks, and then started to fade. And as a result, people that went in on this at 100 would have been caught holding and not very happy with me.
1: Yeah. I, all all these premiums that I mean, you know, it depends on when you're in, when you're out, how you can exit. Um, you know, some of them I know Water and Emperors on here too, and a few others sometimes you got to move fast and sometimes the exit's not there sometimes it's overseas um but you can't you can't sit on these i think that was one of the lessons i've learned in the last couple years whether it's this spreadsheet or others i mean you gotta you gotta really be watching any of these premiums that are supply limited because that can turn on a dime and just really crush your returns if you're not in and out
0: and again, it really depends on playability, right? Like Kaito, yeah, people thought, was a solid, not amazing card on first glance. And I think those takes were accurate. It is solid, not amazing. Didn't find a home in standard, pioneer, or modern. And it goes in all the ninja decks, in EDH, but that only lasted for a certain period of time. This was very much a Japanese like driven play because the foil borderless art was by the the artist from fist of the north star and it it was a very big deal at the time and north america had no connection to that right piece, piece that you know that tidbit of culture whatsoever and so if if kaito had seen a ton of play this would have got propped up just like the Wandering Emperor, but because it didn't, it collapsed very easily. Same as we saw with Obnixilis from Strixhaven. I mean, not yeah. Strixhaven, uh, Streets of New Capenna.
1: Yeah, yeah, that collapsed like a brick. The foils.
0: Yep. We got. Foil. You know, we saw a Temeshi Bloom in the top eight of that Japanese tournament, and it was on the back of that deck being revealed that I called the extended the foil extended arts of Temeshi at three dollars to go to ten dollars. The card does so much work. Every time I see it tabled in in Commander. I think that there's a complexity to it that makes it hard to like reduces its curb appeal in showcases at LGSs because you have to kind of understand what other moving parts are going to be in your deck that are going to make this card really shine. But it's a very very powerful card, and that Bloom deck can't be fully counted out yet. But it's not a constant presence in top eights, and as a result, instead of that three dollars going up to ten already, it's only a dollar now for the card. So. Is the entry on Tameshi Foil Extended Arts at a dollar attractive? Yeah, probably. <laughs> at some point, I this is the kind of card where I don't see them reprinting it. It's it's an it's a kind of an odd duck. Doesn't seem like a, an easy reprint target. I firmly believe that those one dollar copies will end up being ten dollar plus copies one day. I just couldn't tell you whether it's going to be six months or six years from now. Yeah. Yeah. We've got Vindicate Foil Borderless out of Modern Horizons 2. Underperforming MH2 cards is a pretty major theme uh, so far in the negative side of this chart. Almost without fail, aside from the underestimated Mythics that later got good, which were some of my biggest wins, all of the kind of S-tier multi-format staples that were reprinted in that set have had an extended period of price fading because they just printed enough of it that it has not been able to recover yet unlike you know when they printed a bunch of that stuff for the first time in modern uh modern masters 2017 for instance where the fetch land enemy fetch lands bounced back very aggressively within six months we're just past that now i i have a theory that modern players in in response to mh2 didn't actually need the fetches I'm willing to bet you that the vast majority of modern players that still play modern have been playing for five to 10 years. I don't think there is a very much growth in modern in the last three to four years, certainly. And in part because of COVID interference, but also just people refocusing on other formats, either playing arena online or playing, you know, commander in person and, and, and what have you. And as a result, I just think on that fourth or fifth printing of enemy fetches, the market was just soft to them, in general. I mean, they still sell it. They 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 still sell at a steady pace. They're still you know S tier staples, but there's no rush to the door to get them at current pricing. And as a result, they have supply has so far overwhelmed demand for a solid year and a half. And and if they reprint them again next year, then, you know, they're going to be tanked for a good long time.
1: I don't think they're going to reprint enemy these are enemy right enemy yeah Yeah, enemy fetches until 2025 at a minimum
0: i think that's about that that's where where i would do it because i think in the lord of the rings set it's been surmised that we're getting the allied fetches definite sell sing, signal on those um i just think i well, i mean going going back to fetches though the I, I specifically well two
1: things one modern horizons 2 yes the, the printing was a lot stronger i think than people thought it would be um it's it's still very widely available very good prices um and, and it seems to me that people are still cracking because the prices and the walls are just huge uh but on fetches specifically going back to where does the demand come from the main fetches are in two like verdant catacombs and two hundred and thirty-four thousand 000 edh decks and so i a lot of the demand is coming from EDH, right? It's just yeah, but that...
0: one of the ways that that demand has softened is the addition of so many other cheaper lands that can round out mana bases effectively. So we have the full set of triomes that have been released in the last five years, which is a big, big deal. And obviously, they interact well with the fetch lands. But it's very likely that when you go to buy the triomes, you already have the fetches from the fetch shock interaction or fetch dual interaction, depending on your your, you know the value of your collection. But they also gave us the Battlebond lands and got, gave us all 10, which really shored up the mana bases in the format in a major, major way. So, you know, I suspect that there's a lot of commander players that don't necessarily buy extra fetches every time they build a deck. They just throw it together with whatever they have on hand. I know that I've done that this year, where I have not fully optimized my mana base, because I don't actually feel like I need to. And saving yourself the, you know, fetch shuffle action has plenty of value.
1: I agree, but numbers don't lie. And I do trust numbers. And when it's the same as almost the same as Rhystic Study, you know, in in two years, if it's different, when, you know, it accounts for uh, a longer time horizon or a more updated time horizon, I should say, the last two years. Um, But I'm just saying that's a huge demand um, that you know, I think over time we will again just eat through the stuff, but you can't reprint something three times in a
0: year. You, you just can't and not that. expect there to be an impact. Yeah. The um, well, here's the thing though: there's there's a stat that we don't have access to at EDH Rec that I think would be fantastic, and it it is the um, momentum of a card, a theme, a class of cards. Right. And what I mean by that is is the pace at which a card for instance misty rainforest being added to decks accelerating or slowing meaning right. it, it sure there's 250,000 reported all time but were most of those reported 5 years ago plus or were most of those reported in the last year because sometimes a card get is useless for a long time and then a new card gets printed that fully activates that card and then you're going to see that card go from 0% inclusion in the color of choice to say it's an auto include in shieldred that some black card might all of a sudden skyrocket to being in four percent of all black decks for the year, and being able to see that a graph of the momentum of the usage of a card would be very interesting. I'm guessing that that graph for Magic players as a whole is slowing on the enemy fetches.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. I, I think that's true.
0: on On the basis of on the basis of we're in an era, the booster fun era, where. The focus has been on not acquiring new players, but getting existing players to spend more money. But in a model like that, it's much easier to hit saturation on S tier staples once everybody has the copies they need. You know, for instance, I have, I don't know, 60 or 70 fetches, total easy, right. uh, across all my 14 decks. And I'm more much more likely to borrow from one deck to another than I am to go out and buy a fresh set of four if I need them.
1: Yep. No, I agree. And, you know, I'm just looking through the top week, two weeks and top uh, month or two months on EDHREC to look at the top cards, just to see, you know, where they're falling, relatively speaking. And they seem lower on the list than you'd expect based on the numbers. So that seems to support your theory.
0: Sure. So as an example, Misty, I called Misty Reinforced OBFs July 13th, 2021. This would have been very early on in the Modern Horizons 2 release. To go 85 to 140, and I was emphatic that it would get there within a year. I, it was flooring to me that old border foils, despite them being a rare and not a mythic, given that they were only available in the collector booster boxes, did not accelerate. Especially because the Modern Horizons 2 collector booster boxes are not discounted in the slightest, as opposed to what has happened with many of the standard collector booster boxes the market price on mh2 collector booster boxes is 381 dollars at present so the replacement cost on any of these misty reinforced obfs etc is not low you have to open a lot of product to find these there is there was some discussion at the point where they were released that the high-end community wasn't super pleased with the implementation of the treatment that they didn't think they looked all that good, or that they didn't match uh, Onslaught block fetches closely enough to make for closely paired mana bases. I'm not sure I agree with that, having had them side-by-side in decks that are double-sleeved, but discussion was going around. Yeah. For whatever reason, though, instead of going 85 to 140, you can now get Misty Rainforest OBFs at... I've got $42 here. Let me just double check that I didn't make a mistake there.
1: While you're looking that up, I will say I think one thing holding back and will hold back all Old Borders from getting a super premium price is the fact that they have essentially put out there that no Old Border isn't a one-and-done type of thing, that they'll keep reprinting the same cards in Old Border. If If they see a need, sure. Yeah, and to me it should be... Nothing ever gets printed in old border unless it's never been done in foil. And once it's done, that's it. It should be something special and wizards has ruined that. And so
0: it's kind of like why pay a special price for a not special card? I think that's part of the problem too. That impacts it for sure. I don't think they've, I think we're saying they've ruined it as overly dramatic. I mean, we were just talking about goblin engineer and relentless rats and other old border cards as, as spec. So it can't be that ruined it is limited from going insane though like if they had it's the same as a extended art now that's all it is it's not sure, something but, crazy yeah but if they had come out and said said what you're suggesting that this is the only time we will ever print these fetches in old border on the basis that there's all sorts of other treatments they could reapproach them with at some point in the future these might be already $500 cards just because people would be like, oh, okay, like, this is it. This is, this is... <laughs>
1: well, they don't even have to say it. They just have to insinuate it, right? And they, they didn't even do that. They didn't even try to.
0: So instead, yeah, it's $42. Like, you can get an old Border Foil Misty Rainforest for $42. And it has done nothing but go down since the moment it was released.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
0: The The pretty sales crazy. pace, you know, isn't terrible. And on a given day, you sell one, two, three copies. Foil on TCG Player, which is about what you would expect for a premium card.
1: I think it's a great example where you you trust your gut at the start, and then you trust your data going forward, right? And you trust your data at the time too. And I think if you're if you're honestly assessing this along the way, you know, there the the fact the price keeps falling, the fact that it's the changing of EDHREC stats and other things, like after the first and the changing of old border for foil treatments and you know just kind of demand reactions you got to take all those things into account as you're going forward sometimes it's you know you got to give up on something or you know you recognize it's not a one-year horizon anymore it's a six-year horizon and you're kind of hoping and praying that it's going to work out um you got to just be honest to yourself about some of these things that don't go the way you planned
0: one of the themes that's along those lines is foil extended art rares that are not S tier, but are A or B, end up A or B tier. And there's two on here that jump out at me. Augur of Autumn's foil extended arts out of Midnight Hunt called at 15 to go to 30, which instead collapsed to 5, despite very solid EDH play. And Circle of Dreams drew it, which is an even better card. That's basically Gaia's Cradle on a Stick. And call these... I. Th- I think the call was to, I have 20 here, but I'm not sure if it was, it was above 20 at the time and I called it to grab them at 20, Have to double check that, but they got all the way down to $8 and that follows in the footsteps of many other foil extended art rares like Underworld Breach, like Thassa's Oracle, like Steven Skydiver, like Shadow Spear, that all got very cheap, $5 to $15.00 know, $15 being a rarity, $5 to $10 being very common for foil-extended art rares. But if you pick the right ones, even if Circle of Dreams Druid is wrong now, because it was called last August, so about 14 months ago, your entry point at 8, could it soften further to 5 or 6? History says yes on these foil-extended art rares. But the total play pattern for Circle of Dreams Druid is currently at... 42,000 decks on EDH Rec with 5% of all green decks running it. So if it dodges a reprint of and of and in premium for, say, three to five years, are you going to make money on $6 C- Circle of Dreams Druid foil extended arts? Probably. <laughs> but the ones that are m- even more enticing are the ones that don't hinge on only edh play and that's the commonality between circle of dreams druid and auger Og- of autumn auger of autumn as opposed to a shadow spear and underworld breach or a Thassa's oracle which are multi-format staples and i think the lesson there is multi-format is where it's at when it comes to rares sometimes with mythics you can get away with single format play but with rares you really want to see it all over the place like your ledger shredders and so forth yep i think that's fair all right, so going on up to the top big winners of the year we had grim hireling called november of 2021 and by may of this year it had gotten from my four dollar buy price to 17 dollars on tcg player so 334 percent non-annualized roi even better if you consider that it was only 200 days to peak roi so that would have been like almost 500 returns Risen reef pack foils I called to pick up in the EU at6 dollars as the uh, Elementals deck started popping up in modern, claiming that they would get to 15 and instead they are currently at 25 and rising with very low supply. Big gains there. And unlike Kaito, the wandering emperor did get that pretty solid sales window as I as I alluded to earlier. Called those showcase foils to go 60 to 120, and they got up to 214 by mid March of 2022, uh, and have faded since. But there was definitely a solid window there for a, a month or so where you could have got out for big gains, and that was a pretty nice one. Uh, if you find if you find one of those in a set. Booster, by the way, for those that have forgotten, that's where you get the big, big money from the Japanese buy list because they are considered superior quality. Uh, We've got wizard class pack foils out of AFR. I called to pick up in Europe at a dollar to go to eight, and they've so far made it to 350. Only really useful for you if you've got a buy list exit on those, but still solid gains. Wedding announcement foil extended arts from vow called at four to go to twelve. They're currently at fourteen, so a nice little win there. Winoda, joiner of forces extended arts called from to go eleven to twenty, and they made it to thirty-four, and that all came together in just fifty-five days. So very very big annualized returns there. And that was probably before the ban, is that? But I think it. I think it was before the ban. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Adeline Resplendent Cathar, pack foils 5 to 15, have made it to almost exactly 15 in less than a year, so that was a nice one. Fury made me a ton of money. Uh, regular copies, I called it 13 to go to 26. They're currently at 30, not, uh, have peaked at 39 in mid-October. Fury Borderless called it 25 to go to 50. They're currently $70. Uh, sorry, the, the foil Borderless are currently at $70. So that was just a case of an MH two card that was thought to be bad. People thought that was one of the worst of the incarnations. And it turned out it was actually super useful given all the one toughness creatures in modern.
1: Yep. I, you know, I mean, this is one that I made money off the borderless. I didn't make money off the regular except a couple buy list flips, but it's amazing. All of, I mean, we'll get through a couple of them here, but how underestimated all of these were, um, you know, it's, it's really astounding, honestly. I mean, you look at this, or um, Fable of Mirror Breaker, or some others. Like, there's so many people with eyeballs on magic cards, and yet there can be so many wrong opinions out there. And I mean, I'm a big believer of ge- generally like don't get cute, but sometimes you can spot something people don't see and, and make a lot of money off of it.
0: Well, and Fable's not on my list here, but Fable and this other one here, Ottawa a Soaring City uh, Foil Extended Arts. I called 10 to 20, they're currently at 25. This backs my earlier point about you want your your premium rares to be multi-staples, multi-format staples. Ottawara and fable meet that test. Ledger Shredder meets that test. Those other ones were EDH only. And and that is going to be a solid yellow flag that I will throw up on my own picks uh, moving forward. That if it's EDH only. Those Premium rares, you can probably wait two years to get in, and then you might have an excellent entry point. But there's no reason to be in early. Moving right along, Zorn Showcase foils out of AFR $3 to 12 was my call. They're currently at about $750, so they're moving right along. Secret Layer Demir Signet and Arcane Signet. Uh, were solid calls that I don't think really surprised anybody in our Discord. 7 to 15 was my call on the Demir Signets. They're currently at 17. The Arcane Signets, I called 11 to 20. They're currently at 26, so doing very well. Unnatural Growth Foil Extended Arts told people to get in as low as 6. I think they only really ever got down to 8. This was one of my conditional picks where I was flagging target entry points that didn't yet exist. Called them to get from... The 6 to 20, they're currently at 1350. So if you got in at 8, you're headed in the right direction. Called Clouth Unrivaled Ancient from AFC to get extended arts to get 20 to 40. They're currently at 43. Endurance Borderless called 60 to 100 for the foils. They're currently at 127 on foil borderless endurance. Toxrill the Corrosive is a showcase foil out of Vow that I called to pick up in Europe at 10 to go to 20 and they're currently at 21 this is an example of EDH car EDH mythics being a little safer than EDH rares in premium especially if you pick them up in Japan or Europe where they're undervalued as EDH cards because Toxrill is just an excellent excellent EDH card very unlikely to see any uh Pioneer or modern play as a seven drop, um, but because it's a mythic, it's easier for it to hold a price, especially given that the the set in question is not particularly deep. We've also got Cavalier of Thorns, uh, regular foils, another mythic. Uh, Ten to twenty was the call. They're currently at twenty one dollars, largely on the back of mono green pioneer play dryad of the elysian grove borderless foils from secret lair 23 to 50 was my call they're currently at 48 i just sold multiple copies of those earlier this week
1: i this is this is i'm just gonna say this is one of my pet cards that i hate so much because because early on i bought a very large stack of um azusa and this kind of replaced azusa in a lot of ways (laughs) And I'll never forgive it because my Azuzas are just sitting there now at like $9 and I bought them at 7 and
0: they just, they're still languishing in the corner. <laughs> Ingenious Smith foils out of AFR uh, called to go 2 to 8. They're currently only at 4, but headed in the right direction on the back of hammer time usage and also mono white artifacts. Morophon the Boundless Judge foils called 33 to 52. They're currently at 65, doing very well. The Ozolith called to go 15 to 35 for pack foils, not extended art foils. Uh, after that had already been a win the previous year. And indeed, those foils are currently at 28, so looking pretty good. Gitrog Monster Judge foils called 20 to 45. Gitrog is currently at 37. And I guess we can... That's like the top 20 yeah. cards. And a whole bunch of stuff in the middle here. Bottom line, a pretty solid year. And some lessons learned about premium cards about edh only cards but it's tricky i mean the the premium thing there have been a lot of discussions in the in the discord where people have tried to simplify it as premium is sell early and flee but it's not quite that simple because for instance the shattered glass transformers were propped up very high early and now seem to be on a downward trend that's going to mimic the non-red hidetsukus but the red hidetsugu did very well was way underpriced in its first couple of weeks. And the serialized cards have been very, very popular. There's lots of people chasing those. They've been very changing hands at a very brisk pace on Facebook groups and eBay and so forth. Um, I would imagine they do worse on TCG Player given how they are buried there. But it, I think definite supply that, like, of 500 is reassuring to people that often don't do the math the way that our group does to understand drop rates. Because Wizards doesn't help people very much in terms of how rare is this premium copy of this card versus this premium copy of this other card. And they also do things like give us five versions of the new Elishnorn so people get the impression that there are lots of it when in fact it's entirely possible that that slot will actually make each of those versions five times more rare than they otherwise would be. But because the communications around that is so poor, doing something like putting a number on it of 500 makes it much more clear. And and, and I think that factors heavily into how they're processed in the market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: supply. So I think supply matters most if you're trying to get in and out quickly, right? Because you really need to understand what is truly rare and identify it before the market identifies it and buy when it's low and when the market identifies it and adjusts then you can sell into that when it's three to six months out then generally speaking the price will reflect the rarity so i think it's less important if you're buying a set you know down the line and you're buying because you think something will grow. Obviously, it's, it's relevant to how long it will take to grow, but that can also be identified in different ways between the number of vendors, the number of bricks, all of those, and the, the sales velocity. So I think when when it's really important to study that data about like what you know what's in, what's out, what's the the um, numbers and the math, it's really at that first you know week to three week window when you're you're trying to be smart and play the market and get ahead of the market. Um, If you're like me and you kind of wait six months on everything, then I think it's less important. Um, And then I think relying on the actual supply in the market is a little bit better indicator.
0: Sure. I guess I can provide some additional feedback before we go on to the, the big picture stuff. In terms of my personal single sales, I was just running some accounting math this afternoon and 2022 looks almost exactly like 2021. Almost the exact number of sales, like within 2% or something on eBay, almost the exact average value per sale, and almost the exact revenue, also within 2%, versus the year before. So, very steady. Interesting. No no fall off, no, no notable growth. And I think this is probably a bit less useful to the listener in the sense of it being anecdotal because of the specifics of my situation i'm not trying to grow like this isn't my core business this is my side side hustle and so i'm not trying to grow this and even if i wanted to grow as you and i have talked about many times we don't have the time right yeah. like you were just talking about how you know you're thrilled to be able to carve out a little space in between all your other obligations to get your sip order in and i'm kind of the same with say a, ck buy listing i might get around to that every three months or so and the pace by which i list things on ebay is consistent and so it has generated a consistent result it suggests that for the things that i'm selling the market's demand is also consistent which is a good is probably the most valuable sign i can offer that in I tend to sell because my average sale is so much larger than the average vendor on TCG player. What what would you guess the average sale value is on TCG player? Oh, I mean, it depends on the vendor for like the people like across all vendors on TCG player.
1: Uh, 50 cents, a dollar. I mean, it just, there's like the 10 cent cards or whatever, the 20 cent cards and then the hundred dollar cards and you know they they kind of offset each other but my guess is i mean like i'm selling right now i'm I'm selling through dominaria sets right and there you're ranging from the shoulder at a 70 to 10 cent lands right and i think my average average
0: sale there is probably like a dollar a dollar 50 something like that even if we went to cart level and i was generous i would guess it's saying a ten dollar cart per vendor involved would probably be high would you agree
1: uh for the very large vendors you know i think it, it all depends on the scale the people that are doing you know a thousand sales a year have a have a much higher cart but the people that are using direct and are our actual you know 10,000 100 000, or 50,000 sale type of vendors are
0: are much lower on average the point i'm making is that my average sale value was 82 dollars u.s <laughs> That's pretty high, which is which is a result of my lack of access to direct, (laughs) which I could probably arrange if I really wanted to. But it's more hassle than it's worth for now. And my core focus on premium cards that I'm much more likely to buy a foil extended art mythic than I am a brick of 115 cent cards. Not always true because I do plenty of buy listing. Um, and that would be on top of any of this other stuff I'm talking about on eBay but Maybe. the but that high valuation suggests that at least in the booster fun era target segment the collector the very entran- enfranchised player the person with a lot of disposable income things look pretty steady
1: yeah yeah I, yeah the, I mean I've been scaling and uh, so for me I you know it's it's everything's getting bigger every year so it's hard to kind of gauge. But I've only had about a month where I felt like everything was quiet. Otherwise, it's been it's been pretty good for me.
0: One of the other things, stats I look at is turnover rate. How, how many months does something I post to eBay sit there? And that was also consistent in terms of I, I have turnover over a 90-day period that is usually something close to 25% of listings sold, mm-hmm. which suggests that the average listing sits for about a year which dovetails with my entire model because everything I talk about on here is usually on a 6, 12 or 18 month horizon in the case of all these stats we just looked at for my picks here from cards to watch that's all looking back 18 months right. and so it all kind of like aligns with it with the the core philosophy which is find something that people are going to value highly that is relatively unique and hold it for the amount of time necessary for the supply to drain out of the market. I would be very curious to see some detailed accounting from some of the other pro traders that do a lot of quick flips where they're you know in on these ravenous baboons at $2 at their local LGS and they go through the bulk bin and snatch up 12 copies and then flip them to a buy list or dump them, try to sell them on eBay at like six or 700% and how, how the implied annualized ROI could be insanely massive if you are consistently flipping week after week after week after week. But it's going to be, in reality, much more roller coastery, where yeah. they're going to get a win, a win, a big loss, three three wins, a big loss, and the net, net on that could be highly variable. Right, and being
1: able to find supply, because I think that's one of the hardest things if you're... Trying to if you have to identify everything, do it and you can only do so many copies, at, at what point does you can you not scale that? Because you know, you're limited again, even more so by your time because everything requires kind of hand you know, identifying, picking, finding, all of that. Whereas if you're doing something more scalable when you're buying bricks of a hundred proactively or through a buy list, it's a lot easier. So I think there's there's some limitations just on time. For for everyone, especially if you're low on it.
0: Sure, I mean there there have certainly been critics over the years of the kind of speculator model of mgG finance versus the buy list model. Like, there's been yeah. plenty of people that have that are on the vendor side that have said, "What are you guys even doing? Like, don't speculate, don't guess, just buy. You know, Snapcasters and Lilianas at buy list rates by making lower offers on eBay or Facebook groups or whatever and You'll have a guaranteed return. The return will be smaller, but it's much more predictable. And and there's always been some truth to that, depending on people's specifics. But some of the some of the criticism has also been about whether the model, the, the speculator model, is scalable. Well, I'm here to tell you what it is. I'm in the solid six figures. I won't tell you the exact number, but it's a <laughs> it could support a house, a household of four pretty easily, let's put it that way. And there is a ceiling not far beyond. I can certainly see how if I grew this business another twenty five percent, I would need to hire somebody. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna hire the kid down the hall or whatever to process the mail or something right, right and and pull the inventory. But yeah, the problem with a lot of small businesses in terms of scalability is when it goes beyond the the time availability of the person with the core expertise.
1: Yeah, or, or technical, right? Because, sure. I mean, if you're going into TC Direct, there's a lot of people in the Discord who have coding abilities. They can make scripts. They can do a lot of things automated that I have to do manually because I've, A, never learned it, and I'm sure I could, but I haven't taken the time, nor do I have the time, honestly, to learn it right now because my, I mean, I, I, I do fairly decent on Magic Finance, but it's still, I mean, I'm trying to think, what, three, I don't know, like a seventh of what I make in my main job. Sure. And so, you know, if I have to prioritize my time, I'm going to prioritize my main job because that is where the income is. Um, But, you know, you can learn those things and it's all about what, you know, when you're younger and you're eager and you have, you know, less of a main gig, if this is where your focus is, you can, you can learn those skills and you can make, I mean, I think the way I always look at it is where is your competitive advantage? right? Sometimes some people have money, some people have time, some people have technical expertise. But if if you look around and you don't know why you're better than others doing the same thing, you're going to lose. So you either need to get better than them before you start or come in with some sort of advantage that you could lean on that differentiates yourself from the market. And yeah, see, yeah.
0: I would I would I have given that advice multiple times this month alone from startups talking to me about projects they're working on, because to me, in, in many cases, these conversations are often about something that is existent, and they are going to be sixth or seventh to market, and they don't yeah. have a clear delineation um, in the marketplace that makes any sense to me, or they don't have the ability to generate a moat via patents or whatever. But I would argue that on... The MTG finance side of things, and this is true of most collectibles. It's actually a commodities market, and you don't actually have to have a competitive advantage or be better. You do need to be good at the fundamentals, but you don't need to be unique. Like the three hundred well, actually, I mean, like the two thousand something odd pro trader that joins the the ranks and and wants to know, learn about TCG Player is not going to have a worse time selling on TCG Player versus the first guy the knowledge can be summarized and absorbed from pre-existing knowledge pools especially when you have a community access to a community like ours and it can set you up for success pretty quickly we've seen many success stories of pro traders who have come in and right. done exactly that on tcg player and i would argue that is
1: that is an advantage right like most people that are doing this I mean, are not the people that are in our discord it's the people that are on reddit that are seeing something and hopping on it or they're buying a booster box and then they're waiting six months, getting impatient, having to sell it to pay a bill, right? And I, I, I think you're
0: right. It, it's fair to say that access to knowledge from another vendor, the pro traders, or some other equivalent is an advantage. Okay, I, I yeah. can buy that. But I guess what I'm getting at is that for the people that told the speculation focused folks that this will never work, you can't do this, they're, they're wrong. And part right. of why they're wrong is they've never done that model. A lot of these vendors are trapped within the walls of their own model. They have overhead that's due on a 30-day cycle. Right. They have staff. They have leases. They have relationships with distributors where they have to order a certain amount of product. And if they stop, they stop getting it entirely. And all of these things wall them into the buy list model. They don't. They can't afford to guess and get it wrong. They have to have predictable returns. In a speculation model where your livelihood does not depend on it, when you are privileged enough to be in a position where it is your side hustle, you are in a different place because you can afford to take a hit. Like you, you can mess up. Put it in perspective. When I started writing for MTG Price, just as a freelance writer doing it for Funsies. In 2012, I believe it was, I think the total value of my collection was probably something like $11,000, and a pretty good chunk of that, I would guess like maybe a year, I think it was probably about 18 months later that I was at GP Jersey where I traded for the Lotus, and I would guess that I traded about probably 45 or 50% of the value of my collection for the Lotus. So maybe the collection was worth 15 to 20,000 at the time. Fast forward a decade, my collection is now worth well over half a million dollars. Yeah. So you can do it. You can get there. And it it is not, you don't have to make it your full-time job. You just need to pay attention, be consistent, try to put the stats ahead of your ego. And, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, as you said earlier, take the loss, in your in your in your books and sell the bad spec to recoup a little money and put it into something good. Don't be afraid to go deep when it's real, real obvious. You know, things if we're talking about like this year in perspective, best group eyes are gonna be things like uh Double Masters, Collector Booster Boxes, the Warhammer 40K premium cases, yeah. some of the secret layers that were flagged that weren't group eyes but were widely discussed amongst the pro traders as being obvious wins were indeed obvious wins and, and played out pretty much exactly as discussed and lots of other stuff was very eh and was skippable, entirely skippable. You know, like a lot of standard from a spec perspective, most sealed product related to standard sets seems skippable. I would argue that it's the most fun (laughs) versions of standard product that we've ever had access to open. Like, I I had tons of fun opening standard product that got cheaper later. Neon Dynasty, Collector Booster Boxes, uh, really enjoyed, really liked uh, Dominaria United, really liked Brother's War, great products. There are so many fun cards that you can pull out of those things. Awesome. But from a speculation perspective, as we saw with the individual specs, as we've seen repeatedly with sealed product, it pays to be critical, to be picky, to throw you know out of every three ideas you know throw two or three aside and we've had some pro traders say like they're doing very well because they feel they're even more picky they like throw seven eight nine out of ten to the to the wayside and ignore them and just zero in on the very very best opportunities and it's hard even if you're going to grow slower overall that way you're not going to go poor
1: yeah and and the only way you're going to get better is doing what we're doing here is going through your data, figuring out what worked and what didn't based on the cold, hard data, because your memory is faulty, right? I, I know personally, I look at the things I've done wrong way, I I, I scrutinize myself based on that. And, I, and when I do my books every month, I realize, oh, well, I'm actually up, you know, two grand this month, but. I all I can think about is the three hundred I lost on a card that I you know thought was a sure bet and I just got destroyed. And you you just if you don't do the books and you don't do the numbers and you don't critically analyze, you don't learn and you don't see the the forest from the trees. And other people are gonna only think about what they did well and not think about where they're losing money. Uh, and then once you're looking at them, you know, I stopped opening seal product. Like I used to do it. I thought it was fun. I was like, Oh, I'm breaking even at, at worst or whatever. And no, you get destroyed some, you know, sometimes either you're now it would be better because I have TCG direct. I can sell all the small stuff. I think it'd be fine, but it wasn't making me money. And my goal is to treat this like a business. Um, some people goals to treat it like a hobby. Everyone's different, but I am trying to make this into a, profitable small business side hustle that i can eventually lean on harder in you know five years and i'm not going to do that by doing things that don't work and so only by doing the numbers are you going to realize where that is for you because everyone's different
0: i the one caveat i would i would add to all that is that one thing i see pro traders do relatively often that i think needs to be called is develop attempt to develop a heuristic a a a, a simplified rule that they can repeatedly apply, that is driven more by emotion than any kind of scientific basis. And what I mean by that is saying something like premium cards will always go down. The reality is we've seen some premium cards, and we're talking about the Chase super premiums out of collector boosters for the most part, go up and up, 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 and we've seen some go down, down, down. It's, it's not that simple. That heuristic is more complicated, as we talked about earlier. It's going to be about play pattern and drop rate and print run and market right, And timeline, right? And I mean, timeline. Look at,
1: look at Mana Crypt. The, the, that's the one always sticks out to me. It was Mana Crypt that with the cave art or whatever, the tomb art came out from Double Masters. And everyone was like, oh, it's so ugly and this and that. Or you can think about inventions uh, uh, interventions. And everyone hated them. And yeah, it do well for a while, but eventually they did very well, right? Because over time, kind of time heals all wounds. If supply is low enough, and enough people like anything, so you gotta you gotta account for the time horizon too. Well,
0: and like that's, that 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 uh, manor crypt is a good example because it started pretty high, about 150 at release, got as low as 113, in by January of the following year, and people were bitching about how, oh, Double Masters was terrible, should never have bought any of this. And then six months later, it was back up to 213. Yeah. Card climbed $100 in six months and then climbed an, almost another 100 in the next year after that and peaked at about 275 July of this year and has since drifted down a bit. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the true S tiers... In premium form, when they have low drop rates and steady demand, s- tend to survive. and And mana is an interesting one because it's had plenty of printings, printed in printed in the Masterpiece series. Then there was a Judge promo. There was it was in Eternal Masters and Double Masters, and it's been in the Mystery Boosters. But even Mystery Boosters didn't kill it. That's still one hundred and ninety dollars for that version. Yep. So, I mean, I would caution people on heuristics. Um, It's good to have rules and be at least somewhat a slave to the data, but you also can't assume that what you have learned looking backwards will apply in the future. Because, for instance, if you tried to take the heuristics of MTG Finance from the pre-booster fund era, and you teleport, you know, that you time travel that person to today and then you just set them free in TCG player. They're going to go out and buy a bunch of co- like foil commons and foil uncommons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cuz they don't know that the drop rates are so high in the collector boosters, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. you know, the even if you figure out a rule that's working for you, you got to you got to reality check that rule. Right. Monthly, and some rules can just be whatever.
1: boundaries that you you recognize are there because they have to be but they're there because you want to limit your scope right so i mean we've talked about some of mine on the cast i don't do uncommons unless there is an exceptional reason to i don't do foreign um because they don't work with tcg direct in my store your products model and there's a bunch of others that are like that where i i could do those we talk about you know reasonable options and all these on cast but i choose not to to box myself into you know, what, what is my lane? Because if you have the, the smaller you make your lane, the more defined it is, the easier it is to not get overwhelmed with choices and the easier it is to become an expert in your lane. And so I do think there's a value of self-limiting as long as you recognize that you are doing so for a reason
0: and know why. Um, Okay. So let's look a little bit more at like what happened this year. Super busy year, but the highest number of releases ever. Um, 2023, according to the schedule as we understand it, will be even busier with a couple of extra sets thrown into the mix. Um, Looking back in 2022, are we agreed that the two worst sets of the year are Infinity? And a lot of people I know would say Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate. But I would actually say it's Jumpstart. And probably not the JumpStart 2022 that just came out, but the the standard set related JumpStart products that were very very underwhelming.
1: Yeah, those 100. I would. Yeah, those, at, 100%, I, would I, I they're so forgettable you forget they even exist. Um, yeah. I would add double feature to that list, not because it hasn't worked out kind of in a roundabout way because of limited supply and all that, but because it was such a it was the worst possible way they could have made that product that had so much potential.
0: That That's an interesting discussion point. I I think I still put the Jumpstart Ancillaries as the worst of the year. I would put Double Feature, I guess, second. And we'll get into why in a second. Infinity has really cool... I, I like the Galaxy Foil treatment. I, I, lo- I have played with some of the funsy cards in our EDH games, and they were indeed fun. But I came still came away thinking that the the additional rules and tracking baggage that comes with the they're not called contraptions they're called attractions yeah i think attractions a a commander table with a bunch of attractions on it is is too much to track it's just it's just bad mechanically for that format but the foil borderless shocks are cool so i'd put that somewhere in third and then i think Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate would end up fourth for me, something like that. I, I think that set is in some ways underestimated in the same way that AFR is in part because they are very wordy and have a bunch of dice roll uh, mechanics that people don't parse well. So let's go back to Double Feature for a second. 100% agree with you <laughs> that they took the laziest possible way out. This was them saying, hey, what if we could milk standard sets right away? Like we could milk the same cow twice in the same day. And they were like, wait, how, how are we going to do that? And they were like, well, we're going to release exactly the same cards. Oh, cool. And we could make it as a unique draft format and like pick and choose what's in there so that it becomes like a all-time favorite draft format, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we could do that. In fact, we could, ins- <laughs> we could insinuate that we're going to do that in the marketing materials, but then we'll just not do that because that would be a little extra work, so we won't bother with that. And they're like, are you sure that's the way you want to go with this? Yeah, yeah, that's the cheapest, coolest way. And then yeah. that's exactly what they did. Right, and then let's double the price. <laughs> it, it's just insane that that came out. Like, they, if they were going to do it that way, they should have done it with original Innistrup. To do it with the, the two sets that just came out, yeah. that were not very well-received overall, right? And then literally three months later, put the same cards out again. Just silly, 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 silly. <laughs> and yeah. and those were both decent draft formats, and a recombining of them thematically made sense and, the me- and mechanically worked. And they didn't do it. So, yeah. yeah.
1: They, they could have thrown it at an intern and given them 24 hours, and it would, it, there was no doubt in my mind it would have been... A, a hundred percent plus better product. I mean you, you literally couldn't choose something worse than what they did.
0: Yeah, it's it's a total missed opportunity. Cause it could have been a really cool new product type. Oh yeah. And instead they instead they went with the laziest option. I'm actually it's so funny because with all the toxicity about the magic 30th product, it didn't make didn't even occur to us to include it.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> in the top five. Uh I think for the average player, it's the worst of the year, right? For us, for yeah. I don't know, speak for yourself, but for me, yeah, I mean, because
1: pe- the execution, I think people would, even if they, even if they're somebody that's okay with the product, that I mean, the execution was lazy, at a minimum.
0: I think it's worse than Commander Legend for Battles of Battle for Baldur's Gate CLB, so I would move that to sixth and put Thirtieth Edition probably in fourth or fifth. My issue with it, oddly enough, is not the price point; it's not the card backs. Don't care about either of those things. I think those are totally reasonable choices. It's that they re release the set as is instead of, as I've said before on cast, recombining it with Double Masters 2022. If they had released 30th edition as the 2022 product, and then there was, say, in every collector booster, there was, instead of four booster packs, there was three booster packs and then one pack of 30th edition, I think it would have been a massive hit. Yeah, absolutely massive because the fails case scenario would not nearly has been as bad. One of the things they really fucked up there is that when you're selling thousand dollar collectible products, you really don't want your floor to be ten (laughs) dollars.
1: Yeah, and I think the four pack is why they tried to avoid that, but it didn't 100% work.
0: Yeah, you you need, but the, the structure of the packs, the fact that they kept the exact rarity mix from alpha and beta means you have chaos laces and stuff. There's no nostalgia around a lot of those cards. You just you should have just excised them. And because they took they they went ahead and eliminated certain cards from the mix, right? The the cards like uh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. th- that they they're not willing out. to to reprint anymore. Yeah. We know they could have done it. And again, it's that laziness thing where they could have put a little extra effort in and reformulated it, mixed it with Double Masters 2022 or kept it on its own, but Come up with a different set of formulations. They could have had some signed cards by key artists. You know, there's a bunch of ways they could have juiced it. They could have had sketch cards in there, like one of 20 sketches. They could have shoved shelled out the money and the time to get that organized, and they would have been much, much, much more popular.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just greed. I think, like, I know it's like a meme where everyone posts it, and it's gotten old and whatever. But it's true. None. So I think we've talked in the past about like whether or not something should have been reprinted, right? And it, it that question dodges the bigger question of whether any of these, some of these sets should have existed in the first place, right? Should double a feature ever existed, period? Should Dominaria United only one, you know, at this timing combined with all the other products, uh, Dominaria Remastered, should that even exist, right? That Or all of these secret layers, right? Having all these bundles come up all the time my my thought is some of these shouldn't exist there's too many products and sometimes i think we get in a trap of like you know whether the reprint was here or there or whatever and like taking a step back these reprints shouldn't have existed because the product shouldn't have existed and like if you scale back the number of treatments and the number of products then Instead of having to fill the void, which is what Watsi is doing a lot of times, is you're just going, okay, what are we going to do this time to fill the void, to add four different treatments, and this and that, and Transformers, and, you know, all these other things in one set, then you're saying, okay, we, we want to do all these things, we have all these ideas, where do we do it? And you're trying to find the right fit, and fit it in, and make it timely, and all these things. And you go from a situation where you're just throwing things out there because you have to to make money to finding what is good. And I I think we're we're
0: too much on the one end of the spectrum right now. The funny thing is that like a lot of people seem to think that the the path that they're on, if it was not diverted, results in the collapse of the game. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. (laughs) The reality is like max folks, like seriously, you're talking about them being down 6% on revenues or something. Like that, that's a worst case scenario, given what we've seen in the past. If they were more vulnerable to recessions, then given that I, you know, anybody who's paying attention is worried there's going to be strong economic downturns coming in 2023, or if there isn't because they prop up the economy, that's going to mean they inject so much cash supply that inflation will be continue to be bad, which is in many ways the same kind of thing is like, <laughs> if your life gets more expensive... You know, that's a roundabout way of things being worse. But the price of Magic has not gone up. People say, oh, what are you talking about? Now there's $200 and $1,000 booster packs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those are on top of the other things, inflation-adjusted, actually being cheaper.
1: Right. And the premium treatments pushing down the prices of all the other cards.
0: I haven't run the math, but I would guess that booster boxes are actually cheaper now than they were in
1: 1995. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. sure. Inflation-adjusted. And really, ever since, I mean, what was it where they did the uh, inventions for the first time? I mean, ever Kaladesh. ever since, yeah, Kaladesh, I mean, that was the first time we saw the huge impact of inventions and pushing down the price of the, the cards with that set as the EV floated towards the rare cards. And I think we're just seeing that more and more and more where the, you know, absent the top five cards in a set, everything is just so cheap.
0: Which is a way of saying standard is standard is cheaper and the cheapest yeah. on-ramp version of a card is cheaper yeah exactly and now, obviously now
1: th- there's exceptions i mean you got well and there's count
0: there's a countervailing trend because the the discussion point about how modern horizons 2 being released only at a premium price point means that anything that was in that that was valuable you know like a fury versus a liliana from in- original Innistrad, never had a chance to be at a standard price point because uh, yes, the, the, that is because true. the cost basis is doubled. That's true. That's absolutely true. And that yeah. is a countervailing trend, but it's also not true of all cards because a lot of the important cards in the community come out of commander products where their, their cost basis is very cheap. They come out of standard products where it's as cheap as it ever was, if not cheaper. And so you still get chances like we saw on Underworld Breach, Thassa's Oracle, Shadow Spear, Dryad of the Elysian Grove. All these cards were very cheap. They were very cheap. They they are they're not more those kinds of cards are not more expensive now than they were ten years ago, because those premium chase cards suck up Eevee and and they make other more basic versions of the cards cheaper. Let's talk about the, some of the best stuff of the year. Would you agree with me that forty K is probably the best product of the year?
1: All right, let me look through here. Get make your arguments, and I'll I'll decide whether I agree
0: with you or not. I'm looking at this kind of like from a holistic perspective of did the most for the game, was the best received, and has done the best financially all kind of in one.
1: All right, I'm going to go with Neon Dynasty, and I'll I'll share my reasons after
0: you. Neon Dynasty might be my favorite set to crack. I would I could also accept arguments that it has the deepest pool of relevant singles out of the standard sets of the year. Getting back to 40k for a second. It's important because the Surge foil was printed at a level that it was very profitable financially very quickly, which is, I think, good for everybody, good for vendors, good for speculators, good for players because they have a choice of flipping into the market and buying something else or keeping it and enjoying their premium product, knowing that it, it will hold value well. It was good because it demonstrated that kind of weird IP crossover from Magic could be good for everybody, good for the Warhammer community, pulled some of them into the game, pulled some magic players over towards warhammer like i started looking at warhammer models to paint shortly after the set released and certainly and and spent some money on their website the card representations they did a good job like the if you've played warhammer the way that they were portrayed in the magic cards was pretty solid the number of good reprints and playable new cards for edh was high and, and all in all, that makes it a, a kind of an across-the-board win.
1: I agree with all of that. I think the one thing that brings me down on 40k is the printing limitations. Um, I think they... I'm sure some of it was always out of their control, but I think they screwed that up.
0: And I, well, I mean, the, But again, the regular version of the decks has been reprinted two or three times now. There's plenty sure, of it in the marketplace. Sure,
1: they, but they couldn't offer decks to people that ordered them, like myself on Amazon. When you buy something on Amazon and it gets canceled because they didn't have enough, that's not okay.
0: And so, are you talking about premiums or, or regulations? Yeah, premiums. Yeah, sure.
1: But pre-ordered premium product from Amazon Direct getting canceled, it there there's a there's a fine line between limiting supply, making it special, and under printing a set problematically. And I think this in the premium version went. Way
0: over that line. Um, I'm, I'm very I curious what actually happened in the Amazon situation because it could have been just a logistics clusterfuck, right? I don't care. It doesn't doesn't make it a good product, right? Like, but you're talking about rollout. You're talking about rollout quality as opposed to product quality. There, it's just taint, the product is tainted because of your experience with it.
1: Well, not my experience. A lot of people's experience, right? Again, going back to it's not for you. Like, people wanted to pay $500 for something, and they couldn't. Sure. And even on pre-order, when they did, they didn't get it. Like, that is an unacceptable customer experience standpoint that will drive people away from the game, especially if, say this was your first interaction with Magic, and you go, this is so cool, I'm going to buy this, right? And then you get canceled, and you look on TCG, and it's $800 for the $500 product you want to order. That's not okay. So I agree with all your points, but that's
0: why I would not pick it for the... Top thing of the year. I mean, it ultimately depends on whether that was a Watsy side problem or an Amazon side problem. If it's Amazon, all Amazon's fault, then I understand the feeling, but it's still not accurate in terms of... When you go onto Watsy's
1: site to buy it, it refers you to Amazon, which means Amazon is Watsy to an extent in that situation.
0: I need more details on that one before I would jump into the pool with you, but I, I feel where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. Okay, so Neon Dynasty, I would say... Uh, one, it is one of the few examples recently of standard sets getting CBs that were both um, strong sales, but also sold out, was printed in a reasonable quantity, and the prices didn't collapse and they weren't widely available, you know, six, three, six months after release. I think that is, again, going back to supply, you have to have that, and we haven't seen that in other sets that's followed it. Um, more yeah, importantly. And,
0: and- yeah. And to be specific, the collector booster boxes for Kamigawa Neon Dynasty are currently sitting at two hundred dollars, which is significantly yeah. above what they are for almost any other set of the year. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, um, additionally, it proved that Watsi can really redo a failed world in a lot of ways, in a way that still keeps the essence and, uh, but still, it makes it kind of connect with the new audience, um, new audience as well as the old audience. Uh, it was power pushed, but it wasn't broken, which is. Again, a fine line. And then just generally, I mean, it's flavorful. It's got the dragons. It's got a lot of things that a lot of people like. Um, So overall, I just thought it was a a very good set that I I think we're going to look back on in five
0: years and say, you know, that was pretty good. Very strong themes. You have the five rare lands that see heavy play all over the place. You've got Fable of the Mirror Breaker. You've got the Fable of the Mirror Breaker tokens. I sold a foil two-sided token from a Japanese collector booster box for $16 today. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> hard to go wrong with crazy. that and the collector boosters themselves held not only are they still holding at 200 but in may of this year a full quarter after they had come out they were holding at 286 on tcg player so pro traders that were in on those at sub 200 had very solid exits that were not repeatable on snc on Dominera united and only very briefly on Brothers War. Brothers War sold very well for two weeks and then and right. then started to fade. The well, um, And, and the, the, the supply thing, I mean, the
1: fact that collector boosters have dried up is it's a whole cascading effect, right? So if you have no collector boosters at discounted prices, you don't have the mask of crack jobs that completely crush prices, which make people feel bad who bought in, you know, right in the first two months, three months, because things have gone down for two years straight because there's too much supply. So all these things don't happen when you have a reasonable amount of supply and we haven't, and we didn't get that with Vow or crimson Vow or uh, midnight hunt and some of these others. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some sets that were deliberately overprinted that have led to big crack jobs that I, that are pretty easy to flag. If you've been paying attention, like ZNR, one of them, Cal time for sure. Dominaria United is likely another. And it's interesting because the Dominaria United pre-ordered very high for CBs because they had tabernacles in them. Yeah. And then you go through your case and you open a Zephyr Falcon. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, huh, guess I could grade that. <laughs> I don't know if it's <laughs> worth it, but, uh, yeah. so yeah, drop, drop rates matter. Again, Neon Dynasty is a great set. I like Streets of Nugapenna more than most people do. I hate the theme and it's not the art deco. I hate, I love art deco, uh, done well. And even the art of the triumphs, which I panned hard on the first day, has grown on me. I think they actually look yeah. pretty handsome in sleeve. Uh, the triumphs naming convention is what gets me. I mean, it, yeah. it is...
1: Uh, come on. What are you doing? Like, at least make them all match each other if they don't match the Triomes.
0: Sure. Terrible. But, yeah. No, I, I, li- I like Streak String- Sanuka better. The, the only part I don't like is the, like, raccoons as gangsters action. Yeah. Gangsterland is just like, eh. It's so kitschy to me. Double Masters 20 Double Masters 2022 great yeah, product. That's what I
1: was going to say. It uh, seemed to try their own.
0: My one caveat on the master side of things is back off a little guys. Like because Dominaria Remastered is only really 6 months after Double Masters 2022, it's correct when you flag that there is only so many S-tier staples you can reprint and reprint as frequently as makes sense, where you have the balancing act of card price comes down, good entry point for everyone, drifts up again over the next one to three years, then you go back to the well. That's a totally fine model, but if you do a master set every six months instead of every year and a half to two years you are going in to run into trouble. And I'm actually curious going into 2023 whether the Lord of the Rings set is going to include reprints with different names. You know, Godzilla card right. style, where it's like Underworld Breach, but they name it something else. Right. Because if that's true, it's another master set. And there's a bunch of reprint risk. If it's all new cards, which I'm not sure we know one way or the other whether that's true or not, but I suspect that there are reprints. Because it's direct to modern, like if it if it was legacy EDH only, then I would I would think maybe there'd be less of those, but because it's direct to modern, I could easily see them slipping in f- five to twenty reprints of note, and right. then any a- any number of things could catch a thematically renamed card, you know, a Dragon's Rage Channeler, but it's called whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, like, layered on top, maybe in CVs or something. I I haven't seen many examples where they take um, a few splattering of cards and throw it in, though, right? Like, generally speaking, it's either a new set or an old set. And... Well, no, but,
0: they, yeah, but they've done it in Modern Horizons 1 and 2. So if this is actually just Modern Horizons 3, this Lord of the Rings set, yeah. they'll for sure do it again.
1: Yeah, my, my assumption is it's going to be a new set, because if it isn't, I'd...
0: Well, it's it's definitely majority new. My question is how yeah, many yeah. reprints are there?
1: I think any reprint will be new to new to modern. Um, Interesting. And there's plenty so, of things that they could do.
0: So we'll probably get information a bit on that, like mid-spring or something like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Because uh, I think that's an early summer release, if I'm not mistaken. So other good things from this year. Uh, Commander decks were a mixed bag, you know, as they tend to be. Uh, now that they've gone to the model where there's a main set... Of them in the spring, usually along with the second standard set of the year, and then a smaller pool of decks along with each standard release, it's hard for them to hit home run after home run. But the main sets from the year tend to almost always have one very, very good deck. And this year is party time. <laughs> yeah. People have made so much money on party time already or are planning on making money on party time. I'm I'm very curious how many thousands of units of party time are sitting in pro trader collections <laughs> yeah. and and yeah. how that may slow growth <laughs> oh
1: yeah I it, it will but it won't I mean we were doing this with the uh, with the fierce guardianship decks and I mean you could yep. make you could make 10 15 bucks easy just flipping them and a, a lot of people did that easy cash the people that held it oh my god did they get rewarded right and so it's one of those things where you know you 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 only see what's in front of you and i think a lot of people are going to flip these it will drag it for a little while but long term this might be one of those products that you know just matures so nicely and everyone that sold them right away for that you know 20% modest gain is just going to put their hand in their face and go what did i do cuz that's that's how i feel about the mystic guardian or the the fierce guardianship decks which i sold way too early made a profit but way too early here, before before we move on, one last thing I want to highlight is the secret layers. I'm curious if you have one mm. secret layer that you really like um, in general. or you Because know, obviously they, they present a new way of doing things, which is
0: am I'm, I'm glad you pulled me back to that because I actually do think secret layers are, are worth discussing for a minute. I think the pace of secret layers is too high. I think yep. that the number of units per drop should probably be limited to five or something. And they've pushed it to nine, ten, eleven in some of the super drops this year. And I think that's just, that's beyond the reprint pace that is necessary. And I also suspect they cannibalize each other. Like, I think that I don't think that when you, you offer 10 versus five, you're likely to make more money. I think you probably make less per unit. And it's entirely possible that the best thing that you offer was always going to sell. However much it's going to sell. And you might've just focused on that. Plus maybe three or four other drops max however they're the ones with the stats in front of them and i'm not so hard to say for sure and th- but it looks like they're f- like flailing ar- around because we they keep switching up the model like they used to have bundle discounts now they've gotten rid of those now this the scam is going to be that you get a premium card for every 200 dollars you spend and i suspect that that will that we will see more of that in the new year um, I think that's gonna be the model going forward for a while until they see stats that tell them to switch um, because it's so much cheaper for them, right? <laughs> like right. that scarab God's not going to cost them fifty dollars to print, but it might be worth anywhere from twenty to sixty dollars in the market because you have to spend two hundred to get it. So it still represents a discount as long as they choose cards that that accelerate. And if that scarab God ends up being worth a hundred plus or something because not that because the average order doesn't hit two hundred. Right. So so there aren't that many of them in the market except in the hands of vendors and speculators. You know, that's going to be great for them because it's so cheap for them to produce and and might actually be better than the 17% discount that yeah. was previously offered on bundles. Because this lets you build what you think the perfect card is and still get an implied discount via the the bonus card. In the in the case of the latest super drop, it, the Transformers drop that has Megatron as Blade Steel Colossus it just seems like such an auto win. So that would certainly be in like top five secret layers of the year. I would say the the Junji Ito secret layer would be in there. I think the art from the Kamagawa secret layer was incredible. Yeah. The, the arcane think. the arcane signets like the Dan Fraser drops sure. were pure fire. Pure yeah. fire.
1: So I would say if I had to pick. One, I would say the Street Fighter collection, just because reasonable. I, I mean, I just think it, it's when we when the first licensed Secret lair came out, everyone was like, "Oh, the world's falling, sky's falling, blah blah blah," and it's like, "Come on, we got yep. we got Street Fighter magic cards. It's awesome! Like, come on!" And, right, and one man?
0: of the and one of the pro traders runs Chun Li, kind of every nice. other week and the deck's super fun
1: yeah so and there's been others that are i mean the the licensed arcane ones i mean they could have executed better but they were fine and the licensed things i think it's it's cool right like they're trying something new i think that is working that said the rest of it like you said i agree there's too many i mean this is basically two to two and a half reprint sets small reprint sets um you know spread out throughout the year Yep. If, you, if you think about it that way, which is when combined with everything else, way too much. Um, I like the fact that the 30th um, advent calendar was limited supply. I think they should have done it better, right? I think it should have been smaller numbers, um, you know, load up it for X time and get randomly assigned a, a wait and queue. But I, I actually like the idea of a more limited supply release where if you're not in, you're out and, you know... It, it, and maybe not for everything, but if you're going to do all of these, having some of them be more limited supply, I'd be okay with. Um,
0: yeah, Secret Cri- Layers is an interesting experiment for sure. Criteria is a little hazy, but I think the 30th edition advent calendar is arguably in the top three products of the year. It's uh, Yeah, I loved it. But too many probably, reprints,
1: but I loved it's it. It's
0: probably the best value proposition of the oh, year. Yeah. Because yeah, it was five dollars a card for thirty cards, and you had a chance of getting foils, so you could get blown out. And more often than not, the blowout seemed to be related to poor quality control on the on the cards arriving damaged, or the packs that they came in being too tight and damaging the cards. Uh, but overall, that value prop was still very very strong. Like that was like a gimme, <laughs> yeah, and and very easy to make money on. Assuming mine ever arrive, I the communications with their support team have gone cold over the holidays. So I'm not sure if they're just not, they're on skeleton staff right now or, or they're getting, getting tricksy with me. So I'll report back on that later. The let's talk about overall state of the game, competitive magic, supposedly making a comeback next year. Cause Huey Jensen was brought on to basically facilitate that. And it sounds like they're going to be relaunching a better roadmap to the pro tour and GPs and so forth. So Things looking up on the competitive scene, I suspect LGS population is down a significant percentage since COVID because it ended up weeding out a lot of the weaker stores, as was true on a broader trend line across retail in general. Reading between the lines of their corporate reports this year, it looks very much like they hit a wall on user growth on Arena and probably hit a wall on user growth in paper. And But that those are, so that I would suspect that in both cases, there are like, mild uptrends in terms of user growth. But ARPU our per, our per user, average revenue per user, I suspect is up significantly, especially amongst the enfranchised player. And especially if you look at a graph on a five-year timeline, if you look at what a collector spent on Magic five years ago, that say makes a hundred grand a year in their thirties or forties and has solid disposable income versus what they're spending today, I think that they have very successfully ratcheted that number up.
1: Yes, for the time being. Uh, whether it's sustainable or not, we'll see. But I, yeah, I, I agree.
0: So I think like my my concerns of the game are different than most people's. I, I still think that the biggest concern is user growth because I think that if you don't fill in the bottom... If you don't get young people in the six, like 14 to 24-year-old range getting into the game early and have a strong program for ensuring that happens then you don't have 30 and 40 year olds that are nostalgic for the game. That check out during university and possibly part of their 20s and then re-engage at some later date. And because I think it's a lot harder to pull a fresh 30 year old into the game or a 40 year old into the game than it is somebody who played a little when they were young and comes back to it. Right. If I look at almost anything I have pursued as a hobby, whether it was sports or gaming in my adult years, everything has a kernel in my youth, right? playing a little bit of dd when i was 12 and then forgetting about it for 20 years playing magic in heavily in university and then walking away from it for i mean being not really walking away but being kind of on the fringes of it casually involved for 5 or 10 years and then getting back into it heavily and true of most sports as well you know stuff you played a lot of basketball high school team and whatever stepped away for 5 or 10 years and then got back into playing leagues in my mid late 20s the you need a nostalgia period I mean, that's what, that's what happened with Pokemon during the pandemic, right? Like that was my brother's generation who's like early 30s that played Pokemon on their Game Boy Advance that collected the first generations of cards in the late 90s. Them getting into reasonable earning years and suddenly deciding they want to own an old Pikachu. And yeah. I-, I worry that Magic does not have a good game plan for attracting youth to the game.
1: Yeah. And I would say, I mean, so one thing we track uh, track at my work, like my day job is net promoter score, right? Like how likely is your clientele or your members like willing to promote you and talk well about you and all that and recruit, you know, their neighbor to play the game or whatever. I worry right now about Magic's net promoter score, right? Like if all, you know, and who knows what people are saying at Kitchen Table Magic, but If everyone's down on it right even if that doesn't hurt sales right now it definitely hurts like you said the recruitment of the 20 to 30 somethings i don't think that gets at the teens and the you know the youth that we need to grow the game in the next 20 years but i think that's a, a more immediate problem that um perception is reality to a point and like
0: yeah and there's there's a massive communications failure in the social media scene where they're getting greed memes thrown at them constantly, and that's probably going to continue through most of 2023. And if one of those people posting one of those memes is talking to their friend about playing Magic, they're going to get the impression that Magic is A, really expensive, or B, a big ripoff. when in fact the game is probably more accessible, cheaper, and has more options at various price tiers now than it ever did. If you look at Magic in like 2001, where you could basically play standard like type 1 or type 2, sealed draft, and strong focus on the LGS, strong focus on competitive. And compared it to today where you have Popper, Two-Headed Giant, lots of focus on Commander, all sorts of casual focus products, all sorts of art-focused projects, ca- uh, collector-focused product, products, a much more interesting array of options, and base-level cards being cheaper because of it the reality is you can kind of pick and choose how to interact with the game and pick your price point and budget for the year and be very well, like, and be very happy and, and find find happiness in, in the hobby at whatever price point. But that's not what you're going to get if you're observing greed memes floating around. Right. So yeah. th- th- there's a communications breakdown there. They're, they're, they are fucking that up. The Now, whether that matters for the average player has always been the big question mark. They seem to suggest that it does not, that the super franchise content creators and so forth that hang out on social media do not represent the average player, and that those people are not th- even thinking those thoughts because they're not encountering, interacting with the brand in the same way. You know, they're they just live in a world of infinite choice where they can, like, stumble into a gaming store and be, like, spoiled for selection as to magic or anything else.
1: Yeah, time will tell. I mean, that's one we don't have the numbers. We we'll never know until, you know, we get a couple years down the line and see how things are really
0: playing out. Like if I if I had an LGS who was still trying to sell draft booster boxes, and good luck to them. <laughs> put put single put singles in binders. I would, you know, I would I would worry more about people in that model. Um, I don't really worry much about my premium focus because I believe that even if like. 10 or 15 percent of the the player base just disappeared i suspect it would be from the low end of the market
1: yeah i mean the tournament scene tournament scene will matter
0: there have been pro pro traders during the year who have said oh i'm i'm going to disconnect from this game for a while but i still see them floating around (laughs) interacting with the game constantly and buying product so
1: it is i mean even if it's even if you love magic right turning your what you love into a business is stressful and can make you lose some of your passion so oh th- th- that's 100 yeah. percent true because so i did that's not surprising
0: i had my nostalgia thing when the first transformers movie came out because that was the big toy when i was a kid and ran out to buy the original megatron inbox original optimus inbox and turned that into a business because i can barely touch anything without turning it into a business so yeah you fast forward a few years down that path and i'm we're running booths at conventions and blowing four weekends a summer. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. If you tend to be business-minded and find that anything you touch ends up a business, you may want to draw a little wall around your secret garden that's, you know, your your happy place and not do that for yeah, something like, could be could be magic, could be something else.
1: Yeah, like I don't even play that much online anymore. And it's partly because I have to choose a lot of times between the business side and the player side. And because I'm more business-oriented, the the business side wins out a lot of those battles. So I play enough where I can stay up on what's happening. But, like, I used to do weekend tournaments and sit there for seven, eight hours because I enjoyed it. And now it's kind of like, well, I got this, I got that, life's busy, get older, I've got a kid... And, like, I don't even get to play anymore, right? But, like, I still love the game, and I still get to engage with it. Like, I have Commander decks, and I've never played any of them, because all my friends live back in the Midwest where I'm from. But, like, in my head, at some point, we're going to get together and play, right? And so you got to keep it somehow, but it, it can be tough with the business side.
0: Even if COVID was solved tomorrow, which is the primary reason I'm not visiting my local LGS, I would still only be showing up once every couple months. Yeah. Like, I like FNM, but I'm mostly going to show up for a pre-release or something. Yeah. I I, it, might like go, I, I I would go play modern here and there, but, like, it would be, you know, the, the family's out of town for the weekend or something. Right. I am going to the
1: GP in June, whatever the Magic Fest or whatever they're calling it now. That'll be fun. bunch of bunch of friends are going. I think it's June, May or June, whatever that one is.
0: All right. So, on the whole, 2022, very solid year for Magic major growth in the brand. They're talking about it being the first billion dollar brand in the Hasbro portfolio. There's a lot of pressure on them to keep that train rolling, but hopefully they will learn some form of restraint to find the sweet spot because they're making a bunch of amazing products. Uh, If they dial back the greed just a little, I think they will find that the community embraces them with open arms on an ongoing basis. And then it's just about, you know, can they, can they figure out how to, keep the player base fresh over time and uh keep this game we all love moving in the right direction well said all right so where can folks find you online my friend
1: yeah well i'm derek the dark mage and you can find me at oko assassin on twitter uh and uh, once again i'd also like to remind folks that mtg fast finance is proudly sponsored by cool stuff inc where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock including all the mas- all the best in magic and singles seal product and a plethora of other collectibles use promo code finance five during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save five percent on your order and support this podcast where can folks find you james
0: you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG critic, as well as v- via my occasional articles on mtGprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year, $79.99 if you don't need group buys. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering in 2023. Thank you, Derek. Thank all of you that have supported the cast all year, and we will see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.